Thank you, Ryan, and good morning. My name is Nate Irwin. I'm the pastor of Global Outreach here at College Park Church, and it's my privilege to fill in for Pastor Mark, who's on vacation this week. Just a couple of announcements for us this morning. It's a privilege to give a total of the Christmas offerings so far, and I just wanted to thank you for your generous participation. As of Tuesday, $415,000 had come in for the Togo Christmas offering, and I want to thank you for your generosity to, to that ministry. You can continue to give through the rest of the year and even into January, but we're excited at what God's going to do in the country of Togo through our participation in that project. also wanted to mention that next week is prayer week. Uh, there will be 24 hours of prayer and Bible study, Bible reading actually here at the church over New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And then next week there are going to be prayer meetings in various locations around the city at lunchtime. There will be a half a day of prayer here on Tuesday from about 9 to noon that you're welcome to come to and then some missions prayer meetings in the evening. All the information is on the website, so take a look at that. And we want to start the year focusing on prayer and our dependence upon God. Now will you join me in prayer as we begin to look at God's Word. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples that when the Spirit of truth came, he would bring glory to you by taking from what is yours and making it known to us. And that's our simple prayer this morning, is that, O Holy Spirit, you would take from what belongs to the Son, and he said that all that belongs to the Father is mine, so everything is his, and you would make it known to us today, so that the Son might be glorified in our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, take a Bible, if you haven't already, and turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 34 to 42, and you're, you're actually going to need to read this along with me in the text because you probably won't believe some of these words unless you actually see them in the Bible. We've got quite a passage to look at today. In fact, we might ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? What better time of the year to ask that question than at, at Christmas? And who better to answer that question than Jesus himself? And uh, Jason Doddridge, our missions intern, did a study on all the times that Jesus said, I came for and to give the purposes. And, and those are all available in the, the sermon notes that are in the, in the foyer. You might want to grab one of those on the way out if you don't have one already. Jesus listed six or seven different reasons that he came to earth. And surely the greatest one is to seek and to save those who are lost. But he gave us a very interesting one in our text today. And as Christmas texts go, this one is a doozy. In fact, it might be called the other side of Christmas. But to set this text in context, we need to zoom out a couple of times because we've been in a a Christmas season and we've been doing various things. We're actually in the middle of a study of the book of Matthew. And if you'll go way back, you remember the first section was chapters 1 to 4 that Mark entitled, He's the One. The second section was the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, Get Real. Today we're finishing the third section of Matthew, chapters 8 through 10, which is called Follow Him. And what a great text we have to finish that section with today, because those words are actually found right in this passage. Now next week, Mark is going to give a sermon on prayer, and then after that he will begin the next, the fourth section in Matthew called Portraits of Jesus, starting in chapter 11. Now let's zoom in once to chapter 10 as a whole, because it's been a few weeks even since we've been in chapter 10 of Matthew. Jesus has called his 12 disciples to him, and he is about to send them out on their first mission. He's sending them out on a short-term mission trip. And chapter 10 is his instructions to them, his mandate, his briefing on how they were to go about their mission. He gave earlier the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Chapter 10 is the Sermon on the Mission. It's a good way to keep that straight in our heads. And in that sermon, he's given them, first of all, task instructions, verses 5 to 8. They were to go and preach the message of the kingdom, to heal, to raise the dead, and to cleanse lepers. Then he gave them travel instructions, verses 9 to 16. Then trouble instructions, verses 17 to 25, because the road was not going to be easy. And then trust instructions, how they were able to trust God in the middle of the troubles that they would face in their mission experience, verses 26 to 33. And now in the last section of this sermon, Jesus has some final comments on what it means to follow Jesus. And wow, this is an interesting passage. 
It's got three sections in it. Nine verses, three verses in each section. And in each one, God has given us, Jesus gave us a symbol or a picture to help us remember the theme of that section. And in each section, there's also a word that's repeated three times that helps us remember and understand what that theme is. So here's the outline for this morning. Very simple. The sword, the cross, and the cup. You got that? The sword, the cross, and... Oh, boy. Uh, Eight o'clock did better than you guys. All right. The sword, the cross, and I've had it up on the screen for you. Sword, the cross, and the cup. There we go. The sword, the cross, and and the cup. All right. Ready now? The, The sword, the cross, and the cup. Good. Ready to go home? Finish up Christmas leftovers? Now, I've heard a rumor that there are people in worship, too, in this hour. I've never really, do you, do you really believe that? We, we talk about them, but, but I'm not sure if they're really there. I think they're there, but what I'd like to do, worship too, uh, are you really there? Uh, can you tell us the points of the sermon? The sword, the cross, and? Okay, no, no, you guys are worship one. We want to listen. We've got the doors open. We're going to see if we can hear worship two. Worship two, are you there? The sword, the cross, and? Maybe we've got worship too right here now. Are you guys, are are you awake in there? There we go. All right. Good deal. Well, we just didn't want you to feel left out. And we appreciate you suffering in worship too this morning. The sword, the cross, and the cup. You know, I've wondered how those three themes fit together. And they actually do fit together very well. The middle theme, the cross, is the one that brings the other two into perspective. And so part of me wanted to start explaining that theme. But Jesus didn't put it in that order. He dived right into the sword. And so I thought this morning, why don't we take it in the arrangement. Thanks, guys. You can close those doors. Appreciate that. Take it in the arrangement that Jesus gave and and see if we can begin to piece it together as we work our way through this passage. First, the sword, verses 34 to 36. Do you see the reason for Christmas? The reason Jesus came? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Then a parallel passage in Luke, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Now, just a side note, isn't it amazing to take a look at Scripture Jesus doesn't just give us pat answers to the questions in life. He's dealing with real things, with the realities of life. And and I love it that he's given us things to grapple with and to engage our minds about. And that's certainly what we have this morning. And I think there are two questions that we need to ask about the sword. First, what did Jesus mean by saying that? And secondly, why must that be the case? First, what did Jesus mean by that? He begins with a very strong word in Greek could be translated, don't ever think, or as Lenski translated the imperative, don't for a moment imagine that I've come to bring peace on the earth. And I'll bet you for a moment have imagined that Jesus came to bring peace on the earth. Have you not? In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting the Messiah to bring in a reign of of material prosperity and of political peace. That's what they were looking forward to. But Jesus says, don't ever think that that's why I came to the earth. The word repeated three times in this section is the word set against. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It's a word that's used only here in the New Testament. It's a word that means to make hostile, to cut in two like a sword does, to separate, to, to rip apart and make two irreconcilable groups that are at odds with one another. And in verses 35 and 36, he describes the closest human relationships that we have as being cut in two by this sword because of his coming. And he says that this was the reason I came to earth was to bring a sword among your families. Now, this is a jarring statement, especially coming from our leader, 
Because just like the Jews were expecting an era of peace, I think Christians in the church today think that the presence of Jesus is going to mean tranquility all around. And Jesus says, that's not the case. My mission demands that there is going to be strife and conflict. And even if we take this to be Semitic hyperbole, where, where Jesus is saying that the division is going to be a result or an effect of his coming and not the primary purpose for his coming. And again, I think we need to see all the statements that Jesus said as to why he came to earth. But even if this is a result of his coming, it is still a very difficult teaching of Jesus. Because intuitively, we think that Christianity is a religion of peace. And the other guys have the religion that causes all the problems. But look again at Jesus' words. Isn't that just amazing? Now, we have good biblical evidence for our view. Wasn't Jesus called the Prince of Peace? In fact, the scriptures say the Messiah will usher in an era of perfect peace and that he will guide our feet in the way of peace. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, peace, I leave with you, my peace, I give unto you. So how can we reconcile these apparently contradictory statements about peace? And I think the key is to understand that there are different types of peace. There are different times for peace and there are different terms of peace. See, life is not quite as simple as this bumper sticker. You may have seen it around town. We have all the various religious symbols put together. And the the message is simply this. Can't we just all get along? And this is what Amazon, our our great purveyor of truth in our culture, says. (laughs) This coexist bumper sticker celebrates those who work toward, hope for, and believe that peace is the way. The stickers feature various religious symbols with a peace sign. It's such a wonderful message. And, and, and it is, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could all just live together in peace? And yet Jesus comes along and says, I came to bring division and not peace. You see, Jesus is not here talking about a hippie kind of peace, a Beatles come together now Woodstock kind of peace, a new age kind of peace, a John Lennon imaginary kind of peace. He wrote these Amazing words and sang them. And some of us of that era can probably remember the tune. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Isn't that a great message? I mean, if it wasn't for countries and religion, we could all get along in peace. And and actually, there's something very attractive about that. It makes sense. And it's like, well, yeah, why can't we do that instead of do this that Jesus just talked about? And I'd love to break you up into small groups and have you think about that for a while, because that's actually a challenging question. Why is it that Jesus came not to bring peace when it's really what we want? Well, At one level, that does sound good until you understand one simple truth, and that is that there is something called truth, and it cannot be compromised. Truth is like a great mountain that's there whether we believe it or not, and it cannot be moved. And and so what kind of peace did Jesus come to bring? Didn't the angels sing peace on earth, goodwill to men? Not exactly. You see, we have this Christmassy idea that when Jesus was born, there was this kind of pixie dust that was sprinkled over the whole world and and it, it magically brought peace wherever it landed. But that's actually not what the angels sang. What they sang was this. That was the old King James translation. This is a more accurate translation of what they sang. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. His favor rests on certain people and those people get peace. And who is it that pleases God according to scripture? It's those who have faith, Hebrews 11.6. In fact, in the Psalms, it says that righteousness and peace kiss each other. You cannot have peace without righteousness and you cannot have righteousness without faith. All other kinds of peace are illusory. They're just people talking gibberish, but it's not going to work. The reality is that you can only have peace when you have Jesus Christ. And here's the deal on peace. Jesus does promise peace. He promises first an inner peace to those who have been reconciled to God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's peace with God, and that's guaranteed. 
Jesus also promises peace between believers. Peace between Jews and Gentiles who were formerly at odds with each other. And it says in Ephesians that he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that was between these groups. And he's brought peace now between those who believe in him. He's brought peace between white and black. He's brought peace between rich and poor. He's brought peace between Jew and Palestinian who believe in Jesus. Because he's broken down the dividing wall. But the one kind of peace that Jesus promised not to bring is peace between those who accept him and those who reject him. That's what he meant by saying he had come not to bring peace, but a sword. The kingdom message is confrontational. And the presence of the kingdom does not mean the absence of hostility. Even the closest family relationships, Jesus says in this text, may be severed because of Jesus' coming. He's talking in verses 38 and 39, I mean 35 and 36, about people that live under the same roof. There is a a man who's against his father and a daughter who apparently is unmarried, still living at home, against her mother. And a daughter-in-law who the son has brought into that home, the way they lived in that culture, now against her mother-in-law. And they're fighting not about how the food is being prepared or who's doing the cleaning in the house. There is a division between them based on one's faith in Jesus Christ and the other's rejection of Jesus Christ. And the second question then is, why must this be so? The answer to that is because decision inevitably leads to division. Decision leads to division. Let me explain that to you in a way I think you'll get. If I were to tell you that I was a New England Patriots fan. Yeah. (laughs) Now, what's the matter? You, You liked me a minute ago. Suddenly, you're very hostile towards me. What's happened? A sword has come between us. You're bringing fire on the earth when you talk about the New England Patriots. And and why is that? Because the one thing that both teams want is the Lombardi Trophy. And both teams can't have it. And once you just... Some of you may not care about the Colts. And so you don't care if I'm a Patriots fan or not. But those of you who do probably won't let me out here alive if I really confess to that. (laughs) But here's the deal. Once you've decided for something, you've decided against something else. When decision is made, division inevitably happens. And Jesus has just talked about decision in verses 32 and 33. He said, when you go to preach the message of this kingdom, people need to confess publicly that they believe in me and not deny me. So people have made now a faith decision to follow Jesus Christ. And because of that decision, there will inevitably be division in our human relationships. Now, notice that Jesus says it's not the one who has decided to confess Christ who should initiate the hostility. So don't go and make a New Year's resolution to start fighting more with your mother-in-law because of this text. No, in fact, Jesus says uh, in Romans 12 that it's incumbent on us who are believers, as much as is possible with us, we should live at peace with all men. And he had just said in the Sermon on the Mount, you shouldn't even retaliate when people attack you. That's how peaceful Jesus is. But what's going to happen is that some people will decide for, for Jesus and other people will say those claims of his are outrageous And they're going to reject him, and so they will reject all those who follow him, and there's nothing that you can do about it in this life. There will be division. As Bruner says, Jesus is not triumphalistic about the future of Christian mission. He knows that his mission is a rugged minority movement, a tough, divisive affair, and he prefers to make this clear rather than to give false hopes. He goes on to say the gate is wide and the way pleasant that leads to destruction. And many people, a majority, go this route. But the gate is narrow and the way is tough that leads to real life. And very few people, a minority, find this way. The effect of this minority movement as it moves aggressively into the massive majority culture is bound to be friction. Many of you know exactly what that's like. You have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ and you have felt the cut of the sword in your very dearest family. Perhaps your father or your son or your mother-in-law thinks that you've become some kind of a religious fanatic and they've turned you off because you've decided to follow Christ and it hurts. And Jesus' words to you today are, hang on, 
That's why I've come. I've come to open up a narrow way and few there are that will find it. And everybody on the Broadway is going to be against you and reject you. And some of those people are going to be members of your own household. That's just how it's going to be in this life, Jesus says, because I've come to bring a sword and not peace. And as much pain as there is perhaps in this room because of division in the family, I suspect it's not as great as it is in other countries where there is no freedom of religion. Our workers in the Caspian area have been sharing Christ with their language helper for three years. And, and, and I was able myself to be with her and to talk about these things. And you could see the light coming on in her eyes as she heard about Christ. And she wanted to believe so badly. But she kept saying, what is my husband going to say if I decide to follow Christ and leave Islam? And for two years, she was uncertain as to what to do with her decision. And then just a couple of months ago, her husband caught her listening to some Christian material and he, he confronted her and said, so do you really believe this stuff about Jesus? And there she was in verse 32 of our text. Is she now going to confess him before men and be confessed before the angels in heaven or is she going to deny him? God gave her grace to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And you know what his response was? That's wonderful, he said. Jesus is a prophet from God. He gave good teaching and all her fears disappeared. But yet she's living in a home now with a father-in-law and a mother-in-law who are more strict Muslims. And they have become set against her because of her decision to follow Christ. And as our worker shared this verse with her just a few weeks ago, she was encouraged that Jesus understood that this was how it was going to be. And that you need to stand firm even in the middle of that pain and that pressure. I remember when we served in Pakistan, a young man came to our door, maybe 19 years old, and wanted to know more about Jesus, And so I was privileged to share the word with him and we did some studies together and I wanted to send something home with him and he said, I can't have any scripture in my home because if my father finds out, then I'm, I'm in big trouble. So I just wrote down one verse on a little slip of paper and, and tucked it into his hand and he stuck that into his pocket and he, he took that home with him. And a few weeks later, he came back to the house and his clothes were tattered and messy and his hair was all messed up and I said, Muhammad Yunus, where have you been? He said, well, my father found that little slip of paper in my clothing and he kicked me out of the house. And I've been living in the vegetable market for the last few weeks. And I thought to myself, what am I doing in Pakistan? The message I have to give these people is bringing a sword that is dividing families in two. And it's throwing young men out on the street with no way to fend for themselves. And Jesus' words come to us in those situations. And he says, I know. I know it's hard. And that's actually why I've come. This is an inevitable result of making a decision for me, he said. And Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Do you know why? Because his own family was against him. Jesus' brothers mocked him when he was going to go down to the feast in Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 3, it says that his family, right after he called his 12 disciples to himself... Maybe right at the end here of Matthew chapter 10, which Matthew does not record. It says that Jesus' family went to take hold of him, to take charge of him, because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus knew what that sword felt like. And he knows the pain in your heart. Because you have made a decision to follow Jesus. Others of you are here today, and and, and that's what's holding you back, frankly. You you like Jesus, you believe in him, and, and you'd love to follow him. But you know what your mother or your sister or your brother will say if you decide to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you today, that's less important than the eternal destiny of your soul. The most important thing is that you follow Christ and make a commitment to Him. And then He will give you the grace to bear with the pain and the hurt and the insult of a family that is against you. Do you remember the two men in Luke 9 who wanted to follow Jesus, but they also wanted to stay in connection with their families? And sadly, they left Jesus and were not able to follow him. Don't be like one of them today. If Jesus is speaking to you, come to him regardless of the cost. Is the excellence of Jesus worth more to you than anything else in this world? If not, you're not yet ready to become his disciple, is what he's saying. The sword. Peace with God is guaranteed. And peace for all of eternity. But peace with man is not guaranteed in this life. Secondly, the cross, verses 37 to 39. And you might be saying, listen, I still don't get that. That's craziness. 
if, if Jesus is such a great savior, why doesn't he just chill out a little bit on all this stuff about being so committed to me that you've got to fight with everybody else? And his answer is simply this. If you want to be my follower, you must have no greater love in your life than your love for me. That's what he's saying in verses 37 to 39. John Peterson wrote a cantata by that title, No Greater Love. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a song by that name. And they're speaking of Jesus' great love for us and coming to earth and giving his life on the cross. But now that Jesus in these verses is asking that we reciprocate, that we give back to him that kind of love that he has already given to us. Remember the key word from section one was against. The key word in this section is worthy. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I, I, I puzzled over that verse. I've, I've thought about it ever since Mark told me I was going to preach on this passage. Because I've always been taught that Jesus is the only one who's worthy. And, and this, this word means deserving. It means equal in weight or value. And it's the same word that's used in Revelation 4 and 5 in the song of heaven that says, the Lamb of God alone is worthy. And now Jesus says, it, it, it looks like he says, that you have to do something to be worthy of me. And I've always been taught that I can't do anything to be worthy of him, that, that it's all by grace and that, that I, I cast myself on his worthiness to make me worthy. And so we have a theological conundrum here. How are we going to understand this? Because it sure sounds like Jesus is saying, you have to do some stuff. You have to love me more than your family. And you have to be willing to get up on your cross if you are going to be worthy of me. Now, all I said was true, that we are never worthy of Jesus. He alone is worthy. But let me, I did a study on this word, and there's a few more passages in the manuscript that you might want to follow if you want to pursue this. But there's one text here in this very own chapter. Verse 11, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Same word. What does it mean? Well, I think what Jesus was saying is that if that house decides to accept you, then they are worthy of you. And so what I understand by being worthy is this, that you are willing to agree to the terms of the bargain. That's what it means to be worthy. And let me help you understand what that means. A few years ago, my family and I had a chance to go to New York City. And one of the things that the ladies in our family wanted to do was to visit Tiffany's because of the movie and all that. And uh, we, we found Tiffany's and, you know, there's a couple of guards at the door and you, you wonder if you should even go into a store like that when you're just a, a hick from French Lick like us Hoosiers are. But there we were in the Big Apple and wanted to go into Tiffany's. And so we kind of stuck our nose up about another inch in the air and <laughs> drew our chest in and we walked past the guards and suddenly we're inside Tiffany's. And there, I mean to tell you, we saw sights that I have never seen in my life. Unbelievable display of diamonds and gems, even a, a live model that was standing there perfectly still like a mannequin modeling some of the diamond jewelry that Tiffany's had. Now, we were not worthy to be in Tiffany's because we could not agree to the terms of the bargain <laughs> for a single item in the store. We looked everywhere for something that we could afford and found nothing. Now, it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus has a storehouse of treasures that are beyond your wildest imagination. He calls it in verse 39, life. And Jesus is standing at the door and he says, if you want to come in and, and participate, I have some terms of the deal. Jesus doesn't want your good works. He doesn't want your church attendance. He doesn't want your money in the offering. Jesus asks only one thing from you, and that is your love. He says, you have to love me more than anything else in all of the world. And when you get to that point where you love me that much, then you can come into my house and you can partake of this life that I want to give to you. There's an offer on the table. It is to be a disciple of Jesus, but it's not for everyone. Well, it actually is open to everyone, but not everyone is going to agree to the terms of the bargain. Not everyone is worthy in this sense 
that they are willing to give Jesus all of the love of their life. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the word phileo here and not agape, the more typical word for love in Greek. Phileo means an attraction, an affection, versus the more intellectual or purposeful love of agape love. And what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to like him more than we like anybody or anything else in the whole world. He wants us to have an affection for him, to be drawn to him, to want to be with him. Those are his terms. And if you can agree to those, then you can enter his house. If I can milk the Colts one more time. How many of you are going to be watching the Jets game this afternoon at 4.15? Now, are you doing it because somebody told you you had to watch the game? Not a a person here. Why are you doing it? Because you like the Colts. You like football. And you might even say you love it. You see, our likes, our affections, determine our decisions in life. And they set our schedules, do they not? And so what Jesus is saying is, I don't really care about all those details, those little things you're worried about. What I want is all of it. I want your heart. I want you to love me more than anything. Because once I have your heart, I'll have the rest as well. And Jesus says, until you come to that point where you have a greater attraction to me than to the dearest things on this earth, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Well, there's a problem, and that's that we like ourselves pretty well. And so Jesus says in verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, we need to get rid of something if we're going to have that kind of affection for Jesus. And what we need to get rid of is our love for self. This is the first reference in all of Jesus' ministry to the cross. First time he talked about it. And yet everybody knew exactly what he was referring to. Because just a few years earlier, the general Roman Verus had ordered the execution of 2,000 Jews to quell the uprising of Judas. And so these men had seen lining up and down the roads of Galilee... Jewish men dying on crosses and bleeding to death. They knew exactly what Jesus meant here. What he meant was this, is you have to take yourself with all your desires and wants and and pleasures, and you have to take that thing and you have to put it up on the cross and let it die. Because only then will there be room in your heart for me to come and take my rightful place on the throne of your affection. You see, it's love for Christ that enables us to get up on the cross. And when we follow Christ, God has promised wonderful things to us. Notice what is done next. We take up our cross and follow me. And then he says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've now taken a turn in this text. We've reached the the pinnacle, the mountaintop. We've climbed through some difficult verses of sacrifice and division. And now at the top, we we get a new horizon and begin to look out at what, what God has for us. And he says, if you're willing to do this, if you're willing to love me more than anything else, if you're willing to to die to yourself, then I have great things in store for you. And this is the most often repeated teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. Six different times, Jesus said exactly this same thing. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you will find it. Save, lose, lose, preserve. And and he, he wants us to understand this principle that is so counterintuitive. We want to hang on to things in life because we think that that's the only way we'll keep them. And Jesus says the only way to keep them is to give them up and let go. And when you do that and love me more than anything, then he says you will find life. I will give it back to you. Bruner translates the verse this way, the person who has made one's life secure will lose it and the person who has thrown one's life away for my sake will find it. You see, we always want the best in life, don't we? We guard ourselves against any risk. We protect ourselves from any pain. This is finding or making our life. And Jesus promises that pursuit one thing, destruction. It's not going to work. It might work for a while, but it's not going to work long term. And the more you try to grasp life, the more you're going to lose it as it seeps out of your hand like sand on the seashore. So what you need to do is give it up. 
And preaching, Bruner goes on to say, that is devoted to helping people make it or find themselves or be a transformed person is often rank betrayal because it is teaching people to concentrate on the very matters that Jesus wants them to forsake. Jesus wants to give up our life and then we find him and have life eternal. But most of us actually want it both ways, don't we? We want our life and our family and we want Jesus too. We want all the stuff and things that we enjoy and we want Jesus' mission as well. But Jesus' words are, there is no middle ground if you want to be a follower of me. If you're visiting today with family after Christmas, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for coming. And and this might be a hard message for you to hear, but the answer is that Jesus wants far more from you than the things that you think you have to give up. Jesus wants it all. But then he gives it all back to you and so much more. Why does Jesus require our highest affection? Because he is a person and not a force. He says in Zechariah, I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And we understand this concept innately, don't we? That, That when you have a relationship, that has to be a unique love for that person. All I have to say are the words tiger and elan for you to understand what I'm talking about. Because when you get other loves in your life, you devastate the primary relationship. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't play around with all these other things and have all these other affections. I have to be front and center in your heart. You have to love me more than all of these other things. And you have to put yourself up on the cross and die. And when you lose your life in that way, then he says, I'll give it back to you. It is our love for him that enables us to take up our cross for him. So how do we do that practically? Well, as we begin to love Christ more, we will begin to take small steps of obedience to prove our love for him. If you love me, he says, you will obey what I have commanded. And as you think about a new year ahead, some of you may like to make New Year's resolutions. This would be a great time to think about some of those small steps of obedience that God wants you to make. Now, most of you are probably not going to sell your home and go to Laos or Japan next month to be a missionary. But there may be small steps of obedience that God wants you to take because of your great love for him. Things that you may need to sacrifice to to get up on the cross and die to self for Jesus' sake to follow him. Maybe this is the year you need to get baptized. Maybe you need to join a small group this year and, and get in a fellowship of people where you can really grow and experience life in your faith. Maybe you need to get involved in Brookside downtown and and help those that are less fortunate than you are. Maybe this is the year that God wants you to go on a vision trip overseas to, to begin to see some of the needs that there are around the world. I don't know what it is for you, but to follow Jesus in the new year is going to mean small steps of obedience that flow out of your love for him as your savior. This is what Jonathan Edwards penned, and it's a great way to end and to begin a new year. He says, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, the affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I've been with God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I have given him every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him, for by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion and my felicity, my joy, he says, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. This is what the cross means, that we give all that we have to Jesus out of our love for him. The sword, the cross, and then finally the cup, verses 40 to 42. And at this point in the sermon, you might have forgotten that he's actually given giving the sermon on the mission because he's begun to to give broader teaching about what discipleship means in any age and in any culture. But now in verse 40, he comes back to his assignment and he tells the disciples, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Remember the key words from our first two sections? 
against and worthy. The key word in this section that we read three times is reward. The messengers represent the sender. They're his ambassadors. And so those who accept his message will accept the messengers as well. And Jesus' promise to them is that they will have their reward. He mentions three types of people. A prophet is somebody who proclaims God's word. A righteous person is somebody who lives out the character of God. And the little ones are probably the least in the kingdom. They're, they're believers in Jesus, but they're those who we consider insignificant or unimportant. They kind of go under the radar screen. And he says, if you give even a cup of cold water, which may be all that a poor family could have offered in hospitality, to one of these little ones, you will by no means, he says emphatically in Greek, lose your reward. You see, because Jesus is present in all of his people, the prophet, the righteous person, and the little one who is a disciple. And so when you do anything good for those people, you're doing it for Jesus. And when you do it for Jesus, you're doing it for the Father, he says. And if you do anything for God, he is surely going to reward you. He doesn't say what it is, but he's promised a reward and it's going to be good. Well, what can we learn from the cup of hospitality? Calvin said that this was Jesus' way of honoring professional ministry. Here Christ splendidly extols the dignity of pastors who exercise their ministry sincerely and faithfully. Let me just say that you as a church do a marvelous job of caring for us as your pastors, and we thank you for doing it. You're actually going to get a reward from Christ for caring for us so well. See, Christian ministers are not beggars. They give more than they receive. Because when you give to the messenger of the gospel, you receive from the sender of that message, God himself, a reward for your help. How does the cup of hospitality to the ministers and saints of God apply to us today? Well, in Jesus' day, in fact, he was sending these disciples out on a traveling mission. They had no hotel reservations in the villages ahead of them, no relatives to receive them. And so they were dependent on people to receive them into their homes and care for them. But what does it mean for us today? Well, I think first we learn that the biblical God is a missionary God. It's interesting to me that right here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is not content just to stay in one location, but he begins to send his disciples out to the other villages, which is one of the reasons Jesus said he came. Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance over the face of the whole earth. And so what a privilege for me as the pastor of Global Outreach to preach on the Sermon on the Mission. Our God is a missionary God. He is sending, as he sent his son, his messengers into the world to bring the message of salvation. The Christian world mission is God's major enterprise in history, says Bruner. Secondly, all of us can be involved in this task. Some Christians, and maybe you're one, don't honestly feel very involved in the task of ministry or of missions. And yet what these verses are saying is this, that if you can help those who are so engaged, you are as valuable as the missionaries or the ministers themselves. Some do the work and others support it and all receive the same great reward, divine appreciation. There was a cobbler in England who supported a young man through the ministry with a little bit of finances that he had. And when that man graduated from seminary, he, he made a pair of shoes for that man and he gave them to him as a free gift. He says, I want you to preach the gospel in these shoes because when you do that, I will feel as if I am preaching the gospel. And that man understood what the cup of hospitality was. That those who support and encourage have share and share alike with those who go and actually proclaim the message. Hospitality may mean to have a missionary in your home. It may also mean financial support, physical assistance, emotional encouragement. In fact, we're starting a new thing this year for our missionaries to try to do this for them. And that's something we're calling home teams. We want a group of people here in the U.S. to meet once a month to pray specifically for the request of that missionary. What a tremendous encouragement that is for them and for their ministry. But what I want you to understand is for you to be involved in a ministry like that, means that you get to share in the reward of a missionary without ever going. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Thirdly, missionary work is not the only important service that you can render to Christ. Probably never thought you'd hear me say that, did you? But he says, if you give even a cup of cold water to some insignificant believer, Jesus sees it. He's taking note and he will reward you for that service. The sword, the cross, and the cup. 
Kierkegaard said there is a difference between admirers and followers of Jesus. Most people, frankly, admire Jesus for his teaching, for his healing, for his wonderful compassion. But those are not followers because followers understand that the rough cross is the way that Jesus went and the way he asks them to go. How can we do that? How can you give up everything for someone else? And the answer, it's got to come from the heart. There has to be greater affection there than for anything else. Now, some of you understand this very well. Have you noticed that people don't hesitate at the difficulties that, in the words of Matthew Henry, necessarily attend their profession? Somebody that goes into medicine, for instance, understands that it's going to be long hours of 36-hour shifts and then being on call, and they struggle all through that without a word of complaint. Why? Because they have a love either for the patients or perhaps for the science or some perhaps even for the financial reward of it. But there's something in their heart that stirs them to meet the requirements of that profession. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. The requirements of following me, he says, are to give everything up for me. And the only way you can do that is if you have a heart full of affection and love for me. And that's what he's asking for us today. It will be your love for Jesus that will drive you to meet the obligations that he requires. If a relationship with Christ is worth anything, it is worth everything. And if you believe the truth of him, you will come up to the price of him. To love him with all that you have. After the first service, somebody said, we didn't hear a story about Stubby. (laughs) And they thought I might get rotten tomatoes thrown at me if I didn't do it this hour. But I, I want, as we close, to give you an illustration of what it means to love Jesus more than anything else. And this is what he's asking for us today. You see, because it's a, it's a personal relationship. Jesus didn't send these guys out as Amway salesmen to try to hawk their products around Judea. No, they were men that Mark says he called first to himself to be with him. And as they were with him, they began to love him. And out of that love, they ministered. A few months ago, we were having a birthday party for me. And my wife had made a wonderful carrot cake. And now Stubby loves us as his family. I mean, he waits up for us and he always watches us in the house. He has a great amount of affection for us. But there is something that rises even higher in his heart. (laughs) And what we did is after we had eaten the cake, Marty took it and put it on the island in the kitchen. And we came back to the dining room and began to open presents. And a few minutes later, we heard these sounds in the kitchen that were not right. And we went in and there Stubby had gotten his paws up on the island and had begun to devour the carrot cake. Why? (laughs) He loved it more than he loved us. That's the bottom line. And Jesus is saying, what is in your life today? It's that sweet bite of carrot cake that you refuse to give up. you, You can't have that and me. What you need to do in the new year is you need to develop a love for me that is going to surpass by far your love even for carrot cake or the colds. And how do we do that? This is love, Jesus said in 1 John 4, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. The only way we can love Jesus is to look at the cross where he showed us his love and to spend time with him and then his love will fill our hearts in fresh ways and will will abound in us and overflow and, and conquer any other affection that we might have in our hearts. And then we're worthy to be Jesus' disciples. The sword, the cross, and the cup. The cross is death to self. The sword on the negative side of the ledger is what will spring from the cross because not all will accept the message of the cross. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And then the cross on the positive side of the ledger will lead to the cup of hospitality. A new appreciation of the message of the cross will lead you to have a deeper appreciation for the messengers of the cross. And lead you to give practical demonstrations of that. 
So how do we move from Christmas on into the new year? Well, it's fine to make some resolutions, and some of you may need to do that. You may need to to actually write down some of those small steps of obedience that you're going to take to deny yourself and take up your cross and to follow Jesus. Let him tell you what those are. But, But most important of all, because it drives everything else, may we resolve that our love for Jesus will grow in this new year as we spend time with him until we have no greater love in our lives than our love for him. Shall we pray? If you'd like to hear more about what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to talk to you after the service. I and some other leaders will be at the front to speak with you more about that. But would you take a minute in this quiet moment and seal in your heart your desire to love Jesus more than anything else? then as that love overpowers you, you will gladly do whatever he asks you to do in the year ahead. If you're holding out on him, let me remind you that to try to save your life means you will lose it. But if you give it up now for him, you will find it for today and for all of eternity. Would you come to Jesus this morning? I want to close with the words of this hymn as our concluding prayer. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth through all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. That is our prayer, Lord Jesus, because of your great love that you first showed us. Might we love you in a worthy way in return in the year ahead. And we ask that in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Go in peace and in fresh love for your Savior, Jesus Christ.